What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. This is episode 54. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined by Ben Badler. As always, we're recording a little bit earlier in the week, a uh, bit of a busy season for us, so trying to move things around to make sure we still give you this podcast. On the weekly schedule, we're recording this on Tuesday, June 6th. And Ben, I don't know about you, but uh, I feel like this is solidly the busiest time of the year for me. How are things going for you? Yeah, flying down to Atlanta. It's the start of the summer travel circuit, so going to see a whole bunch of players down there for this. Well, I can't say the next draft because the next draft is in four or five weeks, but <laughs> for the 2024 draft, for the 2025 class and beyond. So good opportunity to get some updated looks on a lot of these underclass players and yeah like you said there are a whole bunch of whole bunch of projects in the works new top 100 the super regionals are about to get going it's 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 a fun time yeah the regionals happening this past weekend after we recorded this podcast uh, i mean they're already wrapped as we're speaking now um just constantly updating the ba 500 draft list for the 2023 class making sure we get those reports updated as college players are finishing their seasons and we kind of have their full statistical resume um it's kind of the silly season for mock draft reporting as well uh, making calls around the industry and we collectively try to uh see how much we don't know is going on uh, with people in the industry and as we try and forecast what's going to happen in the draft uh, on day one, July 9th. So lots of things happening. Um, we had a top 100 meeting. You released a 2024 top 100. That's on the site right now. If you guys want to get a head start on next year's class, if you're a massive draft nerd, like I know most of you guys listening to this podcast probably are like we are. Um, ben has a lot of great information on the 2024 class overall. Although uh, a noticeable absence in in the list, Ben, with a, a reclassification already in the calendar. Do you want to touch on that at all, or you want to jump into our, our top 100, which should be on the site as we our, our minor league top 100 list, which is on the site as as this podcast is out. Yeah, another another player reclassified from 2025 to 2024. Uh, uh, Cam Cam in Arizona, left-handed pitcher and outfielder. I think especially notable for his talent on the mound he was number three overall in our 2025 high school class rankings and that's the one where ethan holiday is number one so uh number one pitcher in that class announced after we right after we released the list that he's reclassifying for 2024 so he joins connor griffin who's a uh, really a position player first, but, you know, is a two-way player, does throw, you know, low 90s, close to mid-90s on the mound too. So, um, you know, number one player in the class for 2024, Connor Griffin. Noah Franco is a two-way player, left-handed pitcher and outfielder at IMG Academy. He's another player who reclassified from 2025 to 2024. So it's, you know, doesn't always work out, but we've certainly seen players – um, you know, Cam Collier, Walter Ford in recent years, Reds and, and Mariners draft picks, um, a whole bunch of other players who have gone that route to be able to uh, enter the draft a year earlier. So another, another pretty good player coming into this 2024 class from the 2025s. Yeah, I'm mad at you, though, because you lowered my guy on this ranking from the last update. So 
I'm not, I'm not sure I like this update too much. That was, uh, well, that was why I did it. Just to spite me. Yes. <laughs> yeah, out of so, spite. So Derek Curiel is the player I'm talking talking about. He was just one of my early favorites, Orange, Cal- Orange Lutheran uh, outfielder out in California. I think he fell all the way from number three to number four, if I remember correctly. So just a big ding for him there. Yeah, that's really more about Bryce Rayner, the another another legit two-way talent. I think most likely his future is as a position player, but um, really about him moving up. He had another big, big season at Harvard-Westlake High School in California. Obviously a, a big program out there, but uh, yeah, six foot three, pretty sweet left-handed swing, big power, uh, strong arm up to, I think, maybe 93, 94 on the mound, too. So um, a lot to, lot to like with those guys. Really, pretty much anybody in the top seven or so players, and, and you can maybe even extend it a little bit beyond that in this 2024 class of a pretty good case if you want to make an argument for them to be number one. It's not like where we were this time a year ago when it was like, give me Max Clark, give me Walker Jenkins, Either one, we'll take. I'll take either one at number one. Those guys are clearly the premium players in their own tier in that 2023 class at this time a year ago, and they've been number one and number two for almost two full years, and still are in that 2023 high school class. This this year, or again this year, next year for 2024, it's it's a lot more wide open. So, yeah, um, it's one of these guys, I'm sure will kind of break out and have a huge summer and will will make themselves uh, kind of known at the top of the class. But right now it's a little bit more muddled than it was this time last year. Yeah. I haven't done as much recent work on the 2024 college class, but it does seem like that'll probably also be the case for the college group compared to the 2023 class where Cruz was pretty easily always the top guy when we were at this stage in the calendar a year ago. Um, it doesn't seem like there's just one name who jumps out. There are a number of players who have had really strong years and uh, have interesting profiles that, that maybe have a case. But uh, at least to this point, there's no obvious name for me who's like very clearly the top of the class. So 2024 shaping up a little bit different than the 2023 group. I mean, do you think that we don't have to linger on the 24 class too long in this podcast? I think today's episode will probably be just a little bit shorter than the typical future projection uh, podcast for us, but do you think that this group at the top of 2024 is as talented as 2023, and they're just more players that n- you're not sure who's uh, who's kind of going to take the reins, or is it just you don't have a talent that's equivalent to a Walker Jenkins or a Max Clark? I think 2023 was just a a really strong year overall to me. I, I think 2023 was stronger both at the top and and probably the depth of the class too i think it's a plus two well above average type of high school class um, especially at this time when we were talking about this time last year um i think there i don't i think the 2024 class has some some pretty good position players who we have stacked up in in that top 10 and then after that you can see a whole bunch of projection arms for the most part and some of that you know the guys who are in the top pitching group some of that projection has start to come on we've seen some velo jumps and, and some just some overall stuff improvements from quite a few of those pitchers this spring with hopefully still 
more to come. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like this time last year, we we had Noble Meyer right around, you know, top 50 player or so, I think, in, in the high school class. We were pretty aggressive with him as a, you know, young pitcher who was touching, I think, maybe 93 in, mm-hmm. in the spring coming into the year. And then mm-hmm. uh, by the end of uh, – or. <laughs> But by very early in the summer, I should say, he was throwing 98 with a, a wipeout slider, and we had to catapult him up the list. So <laughs> I'm sure there'll be somebody like that from this group on the pitching side, just kind of waiting for another month or two into the summer to see which one of these guys takes that big jump the way that Noble Meyer did uh, last year. Absolutely. I think the first time, I don't know if, did No Meyer pitch at PDP League last year? Yeah. I don't. He did, yeah. Because the, the PG uh, National outing for me stands out more for whatever reason in my mind, but I guess PDP League would have been the first time that I saw him. Um, yeah, he pitched, I think he pitched maybe twice there, I want to say, because there was one time where they had two games going on mm-hmm. at once, and he might have pitched on the backfield and i think he pitched it again at the end of the tournament if i remember or end of the event if i remember correctly and that's when it was like whoa all right (laughs) this guy's probably going to be the best pitcher in the class yeah i don't think anyone over that summer last year i guess like kind of kicking out right now in this part of the calendar i don't know that i ever saw anyone in the 2023 class who was more impressive to me than noble meyer uh, so I'm excited to see this 2024 group and see if there's a player who jumps out or if it's going to be uh, just a little bit more difficult to line up the top guys. It sounds like there's a, a big cluster of pitchers who who are really good and maybe will need to take some time to separate themselves or for me to separate them. Um, but man, Noble Meyer, he, he's going to go pretty good this year in this year's draft in the 2023 class. He's he's still getting really good buzz. I know the, the class as a whole is pretty strong. There are a lot of hitters in the top 10, but it still wouldn't surprise me if he snuck into the top 10 at this point, which for high school right-hander, uh, I think especially how the industry has trended is, is just really impressive. You don't see that too often. And Ben, we want to talk about the, the circuit starting. Do you want to go to that now, or do you want to talk about our top 100 update? Since we're talking a lot about 2024, I figured we could maybe talk about that and then move into the minor league prospects on this episode. Yeah, yeah, we can do that. So for me, I guess there's more of a, a clear... Uh, end point to the 2023 calendar and starting point for the 2024 it's less so than in previous years but how do you view the summer circuit starting up what are you looking to see um what's your process what are the events that people need to pay attention to like what should we be thinking about at this point in the year when all these events are starting you're going to see a lot of players uh facing their the best peers in their class you've got different environments you've got tournaments you've got showcases what are the the pros cons what do you like what do you dislike what are you looking forward to what's the uh i guess this is like a primer on the summer uh showcase circuit we can get into as as that's kind of kicking off which is crazy we got summer college leagues starting in a few days as well so just everything's moving yeah so it kind of depends on what class and what like what year of players you're looking at for us we cover basically every year right so we'll have be looking at 2024 for next year 2025 even again even some of the summer stuff will still be happening for 2023s like you said the the cape is going to be up and running pretty pretty shortly within a few days and you're going to have some players who are going to be 2023 draft eligible who will be playing there some guys who maybe had a down year 
looking to see their stock rebound right before the draft. Some pitchers who maybe missed some time or just other players who missed some time with injury, maybe some players who were at smaller schools or just don't have much of a summer wood bat track record will be getting out there. And you're going to get a chance to see some of those guys playing in the Cape and maybe get an opportunity to um, have some of those guys bump their stock up a little bit or hurt it too, in some cases, if they go out and just kind of fall on their face. So, um, but I think there's overall for most of the 2023 eligible players who be playing in those kind of environments, there's more, more upside probably than, than risk. You don't see a lot of the, or barely any of the, you know, elite 2023 eligible draft players who need to, who'll be playing there, but mm-hmm. on, yeah, on the high school side. So I'll be going down to Atlanta. PBR has the national program invitational at Lake Point. So that's a huge tournament with the two quad fields there. So they've got eight games going on at once and then some satellite fields as well. So you'll see a good mix of players for 2024, uh, 2025, 2026. Uh, Getting, you know, some first looks at some of the the younger players there uh, PG perfect game has their junior national showcase. So a whole bunch of the top 2025 players in the country will be there. A mix of games and uh, workouts, you know, BP in and out 60 yards, all that stuff. Which of those two settings do you prefer? Because on the one hand, one is, one is pretty much straight, a- just a straight tournament, right? And it's games played. Everyone's trying to win. Mm-hmm. There's no workout environment. Do you prefer, like as an evaluator, trying to get more feel for the class and line guys up, do you feel like the tournament-based event is more useful for you at that that point in the calendar or the workout and showcase game event is more useful? Because I really have enjoyed, for me, on the like current year draft cycle, I always go to Perfect Game National as kind of my first big event post-draft. I think this year I'll actually fly down from Seattle to Phoenix, Arizona, where Perfect Game National is taking place this year, right after day three of the draft is complete. And then the next day, um, just going out and watching PG National for three or four days. Um, So that's always kind of my first post-draft event. And I've always thought it's a really good event to have at the beginning of the calendar because I feel like you get a very good feel for players in a wide range of areas. You can see... Uh, the bodies, you can see the tools, you can see how they take defense, how they throw, how they run. The pitchers in games, obviously, you're seeing them in short stints, so you get a, a quick glimpse at like what the top-end stuff looks like. Maybe not the best environment to to just gauge hitting ability because it's really tough on the hitters, but I think it, as far as like creating an overall picture of a player, I've always really enjoyed that one. Just sitting on one field, having everyone kind of shuffle out in front of you do a workout do a bp do a few games and you get like two days with each team um so i've I've always really liked that format but i'm curious if you have a preference for one or the other i think it depends certainly for the if i'm seeing a lot of players for the first time or seeing a lot of players for the first time in a while then that showcase is valuable get to see everybody take Infield, outfield, 60s, uh, I see everybody take BP. So I think that's that's valuable, and we'll get that at PDP, that MLB or USA Baseball and MLB run at the USA facility in Cary, North Carolina. 
at the end of June coming up here in geez, what in a couple of weeks? Yeah, it's a couple of weeks. It's it's <laughs> so, gonna be draft combine at the end of this month, and then I'm flying to Cary, and I'll see you there at the PDP. So we'll get the the high school guys and college national team there in Cary. Yeah, so that's a good opportunity to see a lot of 2024 players in a. I'm sure they'll work out on the first day and, and do all that. So it's a good uh, either introductory to a lot of the players for a lot of the scouts who haven't seen any of these guys before or a uh, kind of a refresh on, all right, let's see where these guys are at right now since the last time we saw them uh, in a lot of cases last summer or last fall, um, obviously gotten some update or a lot of update reports on them since, but just being able to see them all in that environment is helpful. Um, you know, seeing the 2025 players all working out for, you know, in a lot of cases, uh, those you know the younger the players are the more they can change within you know three months six months certainly within almost a year a lot can change so it's great to be able to see those players all working out and and to have everything on one field like you said is always beneficial because you don't feel like you're missing anything because you just set up shop and watch everything whereas there's eight games or eight plus games going on at once you're gonna have to pick your spots a little bit more but i do like the i do prefer like actual real games as opposed to showcase games where uh, you don't like rolled innings <laughs> yeah or just i mean like i like it i understand why they do it i'm not against it but it's you know i'd, I'd rather just see a you know it's a, a good picture game. of the actual player what he's going to be like in in real games it's more it's a more realistic look i guess you could say even if it's tougher to get a full evaluation in, in that sort of situation yeah and you can again depending on the event you can pick which players you want to target and and focus on and bounce around a, a little bit more to identify the priority mm-hmm. targets for you so those will be those will be some of the big events seen in Atlanta. But then, I mean, right after that, there's and I'm not going to be at all of these by any means because there's only so much, <laughs> only so much time in the world. But um, you know, like USA Baseball has their national team championships, so the 17U for 2024. So that'll be a, a ton of talent there for for the 2024 draft, even before PDP. Uh, there's the ultimate baseball championship down in florida um right after that or it might even i think it's right after that so um Mm -hmm. yeah right before pdp so a bunch of the top travel i've actually never been to that one the first year that happened i think was the first year the draft was moved back and so overlapped Mm -hmm. with schedule so that's an event that i would love to see because it's just elite travel teams playing in a real tournament in a cool environment um, and I think they're they're including more of the underclass teams now as well, right? Yeah, I think it's seventeen EU, sixteen and fifteen, so twenty twenty fours, fives, some sixes. So, um, yeah, good good way to see these guys before PDP starts. I mean, a lot of them obviously won't be at PDP either, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, PDP PG PG National right after the draft, like you said, is another kind of big event right after the draft and then yeah then you get into august and then you get east coast pro and area codes which are i would say probably the two preeminent ones for for scouting departments to go see players but at the same time man like you just can't you can't sit around and wait for those events to really 
start getting a feel for players. I think you got to start a lot earlier the way we are now focusing on the, you know, building so much history on these underclass players. And then as soon as the summer circuit starts, making sure we're out there and kind of updating our looks on, Mm -hmm. on this 2024 class. We've talked about this probably since the beginning of the podcast, but have you gotten any sense of, of how many more teams are now starting to put resources towards underclass scouting? It seems like just anecdotally from my perspective, I hear of more teams who are doing it, and maybe it's just because we're also doing it. We, we hear about the teams who are doing it as well. But do you feel like the industry still has a lot of um, competitive advantage they could still gain by doing this? Do you feel like, like teams are, are doing a, a better job in this area? Or what's your thought on like just the status of, of teams committing resources to underclass scouting, just given the calendar we have to work with? I think more teams are doing it, but not it's not every team and i think it's it's something that will continue to grow as teams want to get more more history and more information on these players as underclass players rather than just relying on their area scouts to try to know the players in their area for future years cuz even then you, you still can't be everywhere at once and your focus really up until the draft has to be of that year has to be on the current year players. Now, some of them will like up here in the Northeast, a lot of those guys will start Cape coverage for example, but um, otherwise it's, it's tough. I mean, the teams do like a lot of teams will have their pre-draft workouts now. So they'll invite, they'll invite 2024 and um, you know, some 2025s and even 2026s will be at some of these pre-draft workouts, these pre-draft private workouts the teams will hold. So they'll see those guys there and uh, get an opportunity to, to see them. But I think having either somebody or multiple people who are just dedicated to following the class for the following year is going to be a, uh, a big advantage. I think especially on the high school side, right? Because on the college side, it's – it's useful, but also your area scouts just like, you know, you're going in to watch, you know, whether it's LSU or Boston yeah. College or Oregon or wherever. It is it is much easier to yeah. just kind of by accident see all of the underclass college players because they're they're all gonna be on the the weekend series that you're going to watch for twenty twenty three players in the first place. Like you can put in a follow report a lot more easily than if you're watching underclass high school players in the spring, you have to go out of your way, change your schedule to specifically go watch a team where unless you're in like Southern California or maybe a few other Southern um, areas where they're just consistent powerhouse schools that always have the top prospects, you're going to have to go out of your way in your, in your schedule to target one underclass player. And like you were saying earlier, there's only so much time, in the day only so much time in the spring to just track down all of your 2023 targets so when you start thinking about adding an underclass player uh, you're either getting into your current year draft schedule and not seeing guys you maybe should be seeing for this current draft or you're also maybe interrupting some office days where you actually have to be at home working on reports and getting information and, and just lining up your own guys so it can be a lot trickier to see the underclass players on the high school side on the college end. it's just a much better format for scouts both in area and out of area to see 
really prominent underclass targets on the college side. Yeah, and you can just, for the college guys too, you can just pull up all their video from pretty much every game they played the previous year. If we're talking about a, you know, a 2024 college mm-hmm. player, you just pull up all their 2023 video too. I wonder how far away we are from that on the high school side because I swear every year, more and more, I'm blown away with the quality of high school broadcasts. And a lot of the times it's for like playoff games. But in areas that you don't think of as like powerhouse baseball areas, like northern parts of the country, cold weather areas, I'm just really like there was a, a score bug in a broadcast feed with higher quality video for a high school player that I was watching a few weeks ago that was better than some minor league feeds today, which I thought was insane. Well, setting the bar high there. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel the resources that minor league teams have to put this on, like when you actually are promoting and selling a product, MILB TV, versus this random high school who just wants to do this to show their kids on the local TV station or on YouTube. Like, it's a lot easier to stream stuff in general, and I wonder... I wonder how long it'll be before we're we're thinking back to 2023 and saying, you know, you want, you know, how a few years ago we could never see these high school players on video. Now we have all of their seasons. I wonder how far away that is. Harder to yeah. centralize it, but it yeah. And there's just there's too many yeah to centralize it because there's just so so many players scattered yeah. throughout the country, which is again why the summer is so valuable because you mm-hmm. can see everybody at you know, at Lake Point for the MPI or at East Cobb for these yeah. PG showcases or at, you know, at the Marlins Cardinals complexes for Jupiter, which I guess is the fall, not the summer, but, <laughs> um, you know, or the, or the Nationals Astros for, for the ultimate baseball championship. So um, you could, it's a lot easier to set up a whole bunch of cameras there mm-hmm. and get a bunch of centralized video yep. from from those events than it so, is to... socialized scouting ben you a fan uh definitely makes it more convenient for <laughs> for us than having everybody scattered all across with like one player on a team that you're going to see the way yeah. you are in the spring yeah absolutely all right any other thoughts on amateur stuff before we move into um the new updated top 100 that's on the site I don't. I want to talk about Paul Skeens a little bit and some regional stuff. So it's basically, do you want to keep on the amateur side or go to minors and then circle back? What, what did you want to talk about, Paul Skeens? You think he's? Uh, you think he's pretty good? Well, I do think he's pretty good, and I also wanted to just get your thoughts on the the Paul Skeens controversy of last week. So he pitched LSU's first game of regionals, obviously as the ace of the staff, uh, matched up against Tulane. And I think there was a bit of a kerfuffle created online with how many pitches he threw. It was a complete game effort from Skeens. Nine innings, seven hits allowed, two earned runs, no walks, 12 strikeouts. Uh, nine innings was the longest he's gone this season in 124 pitches, which also is the most amount of pitches he's thrown this year. I didn't think anything of this really, but of course this time of year, I think a lot of coaches are, are consistently under the microscope for pitcher usage in uh, legitimate cases in, in some ways, but I, I didn't necessarily think Paul Skeen's throwing 124 in this situation was egregious. I'm curious if you thought it was or not. Um, I know JJ was looking at just the 
the pitch counts of prominent first round pitchers and trying to see if there is any information that says like you shouldn't throw any guy this many pitches but to me like Paul Skeens is 21 years old six foot six 250 pound frame like I think LSU has done a good job this spring holding him back I don't think he threw more than seven innings in any game prior to this outing and he probably could have continued in those instances I specifically was at a game where Paul kind of laughed about the fact that he wants to keep going and kind of just has to come out when when the coaches tell him to like I think he still has a ton in the tank he holds his velocity well like I didn't think it was a, a super high effort start if that makes sense but I can also see a case where where people say well the pitch count is the pitch count if you exceed it at all like that's a no-no and this is going to be the first pitcher selected off the board so where are you at here uh, on this one so I didn't see the game, so it's hard for me to weigh in with a strong feeling on it. But mm. seeing him, it, the pitch smart recommendations are what? I think it's 120 pitches based on the number of days rest he had. Yeah, I'll pull it up, but that is right. Yeah, um, and he he, he, was on, he was on eight days rest, which is one extra day for like the max rest that the college pitchers typically have. So the the pitch count guidelines for age 19 to 22 year old pitchers, the daily max is 120. And that's the case regardless of days of rest. Um, there, There are different pitch count guidelines depending on how much rest you're coming off of. But 120 is the daily max and he went 124. I don't necessarily think that is a terrible sin that the LSU coaching staff has committed. I don't, I don't think it's egregious. I think just based on the context though of, okay, this is LSU. The, I mean, they're not the number one team in the country, but when Paul Skeens is on the mound, like they're they probably well going to be, yeah. yeah, they're probably going to be the favorite. I mean, maybe you could say Rhett louder with wake and on the mound, like hopefully we'll get to see them play at some point. That's the dream this, scenario. This tournament, um, because that would be just tremendous to watch. But this is one of the best teams in the country playing against Tulane, which I think coming in was 19 and 40. So this is a team that just sort of uh, was a surprise entrance uh, into the tournament. And going into the eighth, they were up 6-2. Going to the ninth, they were up 7-2. I got to think there's somebody in that bullpen even if there maybe have been issues with the bullpen who can come in and protect a four or then a five run lead Mm -hmm. in the eighth inning so yeah he was only four pitches over the pitch smart guidelines which are not necessarily something that i think need to be uh you know those are guidelines Mm -hmm. based on probably the best available information that the you know the folks who came up with it have Mm -hmm. but it's not you know sent down in stone tablets from (laughs) above right (laughs) we we don't necessarily know but at that point it's like well why why put any more stress on him past you know 110 115 Mm -hmm. pitches but again at the same time well what is what is the maximum number of pitches that is acceptable to 
throw if if you think it was egregious for him to throw that many and and why yeah. is it and and why would it, why would it be different than the 120 exactly that are are the recommendations yeah that's kind of where i'm at i just don't think there's some magical like line in the sand that once you cross now you're now you're doing the pitcher disservice and before you weren't and i do think that I mean, part of the reason that LSU isn't the number one team in the country anymore is because outside of Skeens, the pitching has been very unreliable. And I can see a a perspective from LSU's side where you think, okay, if Skeens can just easily finish this game up, we have the entire pitching staff outside of Skeens to get through these next two games. You can make a very easy case that it's better on the collective um, like stress or lack of stress for your, your entire pitching staff if Skeens just finishes this game, cruises through, um, and, and again, I don't think 124 is an egregious pitch count for a nine inning game. I think it maybe feels that way because no one in baseball really throws that sort of pitch count these days. Starters in the bigs don't go deep into games, one, because they're less effective, and two, because everyone in a big league pulpit, bullpen is, is throwing just ridiculous stuff, and starters just aren't asked to do that. But I don't know that it was so long ago that pitchers did this more frequently and you wouldn't have really been shocked at 124 pitches. Like if, if we had a 21 year old pitcher who was pitching in the big leagues in a key game and he threw 124 pitches, I don't know that you'd get the same outrage and, and maybe a little more outrage is deserved because at the same time, like Skeens is going to have a career after LSU and he is in a position to make a significant amount of money in a few weeks. Um, I just don't necessarily think they ran him into the ground. I think there are other examples of that. I mean, Tanner Hall is one at Southern Mississippi. He threw a complete game in the first game of Southern Mississippi's regional. And then he come he came back three games later and started a game and threw 30 pitches on Monday after throwing 123 pitches on Friday. So I think like Hall coming back on two days rest and throwing again after he threw 123 is much more egregious to me than Paul Skeens just throwing 124 in the first place. Like, I wouldn't have blinked about Tanner Hall throwing 123 pitches either in his one game if that was all he did. Well, I think you made a good point about pitchers not throwing that many pitches in Major League Baseball. And people will point to that and say, oh, well, even MLB pitchers don't do this, don't have that pitch count. But I, I don't find that to be a particularly compelling argument. I think it's an appeal to authority and the points that you brought up. Yeah, part of the reason they don't is because there's so much, we just know pitchers are so much less effective the third or fourth time yeah. through the lineup that it makes sense to bring in one of your fireballing relievers <laughs> who's, you know, p- pick him from a crowd throwing 99 with a, a nasty slider or a splitter or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever off-speed pitch they're throwing from some funky angle. So that's, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think MLB is, I don't think MLB teams have exactly cracked the code on how to keep pitchers healthy either. So I, I don't find that argument to be super compelling myself, but the point, the, the second one about, yeah, the, the the part where we see this tournament start to get pretty dicey as far as pitcher usage is when you have a guy throwing, you know, just starting throwing 90, 100 pitches, whatever it is, and then coming back on like one day's rest and being asked to 
pitch again. Like that's not, that's not all right. That should not happen. And that's where there's a misalignment of incentives where the coach, you know, especially if it's a junior who's going to be gone next year because they're going to get drafted where that player has a lot of money potentially on the line, but the coach's incentives and the way the coach gets paid is to win, to go deeper into the tournament. His next job or his next contract is going to be based on how well they perform. And, you know, maybe if it's a freshman, they're going to protect him a little bit more because they're going to have more years uh, ahead with that pitcher. But if it's somebody who's going to be gone within the next month, then the incentives are not aligned well for um, for the coach and the player. And yeah. I think that's the part where it's it gets pretty – uh, pretty icky to me. Yeah, and I I can see your point about coaches maybe being a little more careful with freshmen, but I don't even necessarily know if that's the case. Like, I think regardless of of the year of how many years you have, like coaches are going to maximize like chances to win because that's their incentives. Like, I don't think yeah. Mar Rocker was babied when he was a freshman. I mean, he was the best pitcher on that staff with Vanderbilt, and they ran him out there and let him get as many outs as he could for the most part. Like, I'm just looking at his his innings and his pitch counts at the end of the year as a freshman. He threw 101 pitches in six innings um, against Indiana State. He threw 131 pitches in nine innings against Duke. That was the insane Duke star that really catapulted him into like the casual baseball fans conscious 19 strikeouts uh, in a, a no-hit shutout in that game. Um, then about 10 days later, 95 pitches six innings against Mississippi State, then 104 pitches and 6.1 innings against Michigan. So, yeah, I think you're right that there are incentives that are just misaligned for college baseball and pitchers' pro futures. I don't know how you really get out of that. I'm curious if you think that that college should be subject to some sort of pitch count restrictions in general. Like we see a lot of uh, international events that you do have to abide by certain pitch pitch count limitations um if you think that would be beneficial maybe that encourages teams to just use more of their pitchers and develop more pitchers outside of just riding your horses i could see that potentially being beneficial but i also think too it's just important to remember that these games don't mean nothing and i think it's very easy to just assume that because these players are going to play in pro ball that the college world series is meaningless and i think anytime you talk to players the fans, the coaches, like all of them want to win these games. They mean something. It's not a it's not a non-factor when we're thinking about this. Um, I, I think we need to maybe think about all of those factors and try and come to like a, a common... There's no like right or wrong answer, but I, I don't know. The, the outrage online just kind of got to me for this one with skiing specifically. You don't think the people calling uh, Jay Johnson, the LSU coach, uh, a criminal were... <laughs> That he should go to no, it, it is, I wonder it's what funny. the sentence should be. For... It's, it's funny, too, because the entire year we're talking about how oh, Paul Skeens has benefited so much by working with Wes Johnson, who is just a pitching coach with the Twins. Like he's, he's the best guy you could have to work with. He knows what it looks like. like we don't think Wes Johnson is aware of like what Paul Skeens' future is at the next level. He was just in that world. Like I don't think you can the entire year praise LSU's coaching staff 
for how they've handled Skeens and what they've done with him and how they've improved his draft stock to get him to this point. Because there's no doubt that, that LSU is behind some percentage of what Paul Skeens has done this year. You, you have to give most of the credit to the player, obviously, because he's the one going out and doing it. But I definitely think that Wes Johnson has helped Paul Skeens make quite a bit of money. And I don't think that him going four pitches over the pitch smart guidelines on eight days rest in a regional game throws all of that away. Like, well, I, I think, think he, it could be it could be the case that the coaching staff at LSU has been extremely positive and beneficial for Paul Skeen's development. And even you could say that they have used him um, judiciously or or mm-hmm. fairly um, or, or in a, a manner that's good for his his long term health during the regular season and then say that in this particular outing they overused him still i don't i don't think that's necessarily something where just because they've developed him well means that they're immune to yeah yeah. means that whatever they do in this situation and again i agree it's not it it was it was a bigger workload than certainly i would have been comfortable with if i were uh you know paul Skeens's advisor say but (laughs) um and and I think that again, given the context of okay, this is LSU against uh, you know a two lane team that had a, a lost a lot more games <laughs> than they won this year uh, with a five run lead heading into the ninth. You got to have somebody else, I think, in the bullpen who can come out and not give up five runs in one inning to that mm-hmm. lineup. And rather than have Paul Skeens come out when he's, yeah, I mean, look, he's, you know, he's big, he's strong, he's extremely athletic. I mean, is a two-way or was a two-way guy up until this year. Uh, this is not some 150-pound, you know, kid by any means. But, yeah. uh, but at the same time, you know, once you're at 110 pitches or so, like, yeah, you're going to have more fatigue than you did when you were at, you know, pitch zero to – 30 of the game so it's like why why take that chance that could even if it's only slightly increase his potential injury risk by bringing him out when this is something that should be a very very winnable game with some other options and alternatives Mm -hmm. for them yeah fair but but I, i do think like you said the 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 bigger points to to look at are when you're bringing guys back on short rest and just mm-hmm. having them throw when they're especially when you, sometimes you see like these guys are clearly fatigued and gassed coming mm-hmm. back after they started and having them pitch on short rest and throw multiple innings it's like mm, that's that's something that's not not right and again even in even in that situation it's there is some context like, all right, is this the last, is this some senior who has no future in pro ball? And it's like going to be the last game he ever throws. Like, eh, like I, I'm still not thrilled about it, but it's a lot different than doing it with somebody who, uh, you know, you're just trying to like squeeze every ounce that you can <laughs> out of yeah. them. If, if they're a, if they have a future in professional baseball, but um, you know, your incentive as a coach is to do everything you can right now to to win. Mm-hmm. I just want to tell you uh, Skeen's total workload this year and get your thoughts on that just in general. So he's thrown 
99.1 innings this year total over 16 starts. Every start except for one, excuse me, two. Every start except for two, he's gone at least six innings. And up to Tulane has never pitched uh, a complete eight innings. So it's been mostly six or seven innings. He's thrown, and LSU has this in their their game-by-game pitch log for Skeens, which is nice. I think some colleges have this. A lot don't. They have the exact pitch counts. He's thrown 1,610 pitches this season, which is a 100-pitch average um, per game. I'm curious if you think that workload, like each year on the draft side, there is a there is a a focus on pitching prospects going out and posting and showing they can handle the workload. Like at what point do you think the workload begins to become too much for an amateur pitcher? Do you think Skeens' workload this year is is pretty typical? Do you think going 100 pitches per game is like normal? Like just what are your thoughts in general on all of this? I don't think he threw the 124 pitches was the most he's thrown so far this year, but he has a number of games where he reached the 100 pitch mark, uh, 101 in his second game, 106 a few games later, 105, 107, 111, 117, 110, 116. So it's not unusual for him to be around that 100 pitch mark, and I'm curious if you think that that is okay, um, just considering how many innings he's thrown, how many strikeouts he has, like just collectively the usage for Skeens, and if you have any takes on like just amateur pitcher usage, even though Skeens is like the most dominant pitcher in college baseball. And I'm sure there's a, a very strong incentive to just ride him out for a majority of games. I, I don't have a strong feeling on it, but I do think it's important to also just keep in mind that college pitchers are not working on the same schedule as guys in pro ball. Yep. I mean, they're throwing once a week. Usually it's an extra day of rest that they get. Um, so, I mean, we we could be talking on this, you know, episode 300 or whatever it is of this podcast in 30 years five, from now when we get to that. Well, I was going to say five. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we'll see how the summer goes, um, you know, and, and we could be looking back in five, 10 years and saying, remember when we used to have, you know, a five man rotation and every team did it that way. And how crazy was that, that we were operating with this schedule like pretty much cookie cutter for not every single team but uh, some teams do it a little bit differently but why why did we do it that way just because historically that's what we've traditionally done things and then maybe we find out that hey having that extra day of rest is an enormous benefit for pitcher health so again another reason you know, not, not, there's, not that I know of, at least now that there's evidence for that, but um, just another reason why I'm not going to defer to what MLB teams do in terms of how they handle their pitchers as like the be-all, end-all of best practices for mm-hmm. managing pitcher workload and health. Yeah. No, it's, I guess, an interesting conversation. Um but it, it obviously is an area where no one has like clear, hard and fast answers to anything. And I don't know. Paul Skeens is still going to go pretty good. Hopefully he stays healthy. Uh, that's that's the goal with all these pitchers. So uh, anything else on the amateur side? Or you want to talk about our top 100 update? Because that was a, 
I don't know if fascinating is the best word for the meeting we had yesterday, but the, one of the most unique top 100 meetings we have for, for putting this list together. I, I think the, uh, the current status of minor league prospects uh, could really use a draft to help send some reinforcements. Yeah, we had uh, probably, what, a four-hour or so meeting hashing out the top 100. Mm-hmm. So, like you said, there are a lot of graduations, and we don't have the replacements yet for them from <laughs> the new draft. So you get toward the back of the list, and there's some players who I, – I still like a lot of these players who are in the back end of the top 100, but overall, like this is going to the P – the point in the year or maybe right before we updated right before the draft this year, that's going to be about as weak as it gets. Yeah. Overall. I think the back end of the list, like I I would say this is a meeting where it felt like we were scraping the barrel more than we ever have just to try and find guys that we felt confident in to put on the back of the hundred. But even inside the top 10 with some of the graduations we've had, like some of the guys who we have at the back of the top 10 range just don't like, they don't really have the feel of typical top 10 prospects to me. And maybe this is just me kind of being spoiled with the past few years being more involved in the prospect team, just having a lot of really impressive talent. And this is kind of just the normal cycle that you deal with um, when you're covering prospects. But I think there is a lot of opportunity for players to, to take a step forward and move up these rankings pretty significantly. Because I think once you get outside of, I don't know, like the top seven there are a lot of question marks for a lot of these prospects um yeah i i guess you have had you've done this for a lot longer than me how how would you gauge the current like the the snapshot of the current top 100 field relative to average like do you have a, a good idea in your head about like if this is like well below average if this is just typical for a normal year this part of the calendar uh like like how how much are, do we need some more prospects to enter this this top 100 and, and get into affiliated ball? Well, I don't know that it's like super out of the ordinary. I mean, one part is maybe one, we don't have like the at the very top of the list. Um, you know, like we have Ellie De La Cruz now as our number one prospect in baseball. Jackson Holiday is right behind him at two. Yeah, we got we got talked out of the room for that conversation, Ben. This is the uh, the Jackson Holiday number one fan club here and it didn't happen we, we need more power in the ba room clearly yeah well hopefully ellie will be awesome and graduate <laughs> and then we'll be talking and about then jackson holiday i think it, today actually he it was announced that he's he's being promoted to the bigs did you see that as we record yeah this? yeah i did um so, so ellie de la cruz number one prospect and big leaguer it's we we don't have that guy right now who's in the you know, like we had when we had uh, maybe Adley Rushman or Vlad Jr., Ronald Acuna, these guys who are impact players and doing it at the upper levels of the minors with very few question marks about, especially about the pure hitting ability. I mean, we do have obviously Ellie in the upper minors and then Jackson Churios in the upper minors, but he's not exactly dominating there not that i think he's been bad necessarily but um just not like a dominant performance right now where if he was he'd probably be in the he might be number one (laughs) yeah i feel Uh, like there's no one who's like made it easy to select a a clear-cut number one prospect if that makes sense yeah so 
we have that. And then outside of Jackson Holiday, a lot of the top draft picks from last year have not um, inspired a ton of confidence, mm-hmm. I think is fair to say. I mean, Drew Jones is hurt. Uh, some other high draft picks from last year have Yep, Kamar Rocker's hurt. Elijah Green has swung and missed a ton. Jacob Berry has not hit and not hit the ball hard. Um, Brooks Lee has just been fine. Gavin Cross has struggled. Uh, Kevin Prada has real questions about his catching ability. Jace Young has just been kind of okay. Um, Really, beyond that, like Zach Neto is the one who you can point to and say, yeah, he's been better than we expected. Um, Dylan Lesko is still recovering. Chase DeLauder's been out. Kemp Collier not really performing early on. Uh, so you really go down the list, and there are, there have been a lot of guys who have, who have struggled. I think Noah Schultz pitched last week. That was exciting. He's a first-rounder. I'm, I'm curious to see how he performs. Justin Crawford, a guy that you really like, has looked good, still pretty far away. Um, Xavier Isaac, the Rays pick that a lot of people were surprised by. He's got some interesting underlying hitting data. But, yeah, to your larger point, like a lot of those guys, especially the top-end guys that – you would have thought a year ago at this time you feel pretty confident in their offensive profiles. Uh, maybe this is just another lesson that that you can never be too confident in an amateur player how they how they transition to the pro game. Yeah, and on the pitching side, we've seen really good results now from Robbie Snelling with the Padres, left-handed pitcher Jacob Mizierowski, mm-hmm. Brewers right-hander. So jumping those guys into the top 100. Cole Young has been solid. Mariners shortstop, not a lot of power but getting on base at a pretty high clip. But those, yeah. yeah, those premium guys who were, you know, top 10 picks or top 10 bonus guys, uh, some definitely some early struggles outside of uh, Jackson Holiday. So, yeah, so hopefully they can get back on track and, uh, and figure things out. Uh, a few interesting guys, you mentioned Robbie Snelling. He's one that I was going to bring up as a, a guy who jumped on this list and, is really exciting to me. The performance has been good. He was viewed as similar in talent, or at least similar on our draft board to Dylan Lesko. Uh, obviously, the Padres selected both. He's a left-handed pitcher, really physical athlete um, who had impressive stuff. Fastball in the mid-90s, one of the better breaking balls in the class. To see him perform and, and get really positive reviews is encouraging. Um, I'm curious like how people view the breaking ball because it's – it was previously curveball, and now I hear people talking about it as a slider. So I wonder if it's just one of those breaking balls that blends in shape, uh, or if he's he's added a new pitch entirely. Because he threw a spike curve that was one of the better amateur breaking balls in the class a year ago. So he was a name that's interesting to me who who jumped up on this list and moved up boards. The other one is Colt Keith. I'm curious what you think about Colt because the last time we talked about him on this podcast, it was in. In reference to a question comparing him to Gunnar Henderson, which I think we we pretty quickly, and it was mostly me, like downplayed that, but all of a sudden he's like a borderline top 30 prospect in baseball and has been mashing. What are your thoughts on Colt Keith at this point? Yeah, the performance has been really strong. I mean, it was good last year, too. He just didn't play a ton. He had the shoulder injury. Uh, if I remember right correctly, um, and then it's but but when he has been on the field, it's been impressive. Um, it's you know it, defensively, 
I don't know where exactly he's going to play, but that's probably more the concern. But to see somebody who's 20, I think he's still 21 years old at this point, hitting, I mean, 321, 396, 563 in double A. I mean, it's the Eastern League. It's it's pretty pretty impressive. I'm getting not that I not that I lack necessarily a ton of confidence in his bat before, but to see him do it, just continue to add to it when healthy, now doing it in the upper mm-hmm. levels. Like you said, there's a reason he was one of the big risers for us in this update. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious where he, he winds up defensively. It sounds like there's a lot of risk he can move to first. He's mostly played third base so far in his um, professional career. He's also been getting into a few games at second base recently. He's a really weird profile because he was a plus runner pre-draft. I've heard from some scouts who think he's still a plus runner. That's never translated to steals. And just based on the way people talk about him defensively, I'm kind of surprised he's still running times that good. He's a big dude, man. Yeah. (laughs) He's very big, very strong. So I think second base seems to be this position that all of these profile question mark players move to, like Nolan Gorman, Michael Bush. Both those players tried the second base experiment. I feel like we kind of underrate how difficult second base still is, especially now that we're moving into the post-shift world. Mm-hmm. Like, it's still middle infield. You still need to have quick actions. You need a quick transfer at the bag. Like, you need good footwork. Range should be more important than it previously was. I I, I, I kind of get – I laugh a little bit when you hear about all these players who are apparently – first base question marks or second base because those two are just so different to me in my mind yeah well that's why somebody's going to draft kevin mcgonagall this year and i'll be be very uh probably excited about that pick where some people say oh well he's not a probably not a shortstop probably more of a second baseman but i don't know it could be a plus to double plus hitter and again Mm -hmm. second base is not like some position where you can just throw some big fat guy (laughs) well i I swear there have been some some players where i hear they're playing second base and i'm like wait really him this guy like are we serious is where is nolan gorman playing right now actually because he's having a monstrous offensive season and he definitely had the second base experiment if he's sitting here and still playing second base every day then man i I need to watch him play defense because i I never would have expected him to be a big league second baseman having yeah well i mean mostly second base still that's crazy yeah, second base, a little bit of third. DH. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. He's a, He plays hitter. That's what he plays. But no, I think McGonagall is one where, like, he makes sense to me as a second baseman because it, it right, seems like yeah. just arm strength is a little light for a shortstop and maybe the actions, but, like, he seems to be a guy who has great glove work, good hands around the bag, good exchange. Like, that one, that one doesn't surprise me. Well, one of the fallers on this list, because he just hasn't lit it up yet, obviously, is Kevin Parada with oh, the Mets and we've got two of my guys who are fo- big big fallers on this list Ben it hurts it hurts me well I just bring him up because we have heard some speculation about like hey you know he hasn't lit it up offensively and, and the bat is obviously or was supposed to be his calling card and then the defense was a question mark so if he doesn't catch where does he go mm-hmm. and there's been some speculation about could he play second base which seems you talk about first base second base being an unusual one about catcher second base 
I mean, I yeah. guess what Craig Biggio back in the day, but he's a very different uh, <laughs> uh, type of player than Parada. Yeah, Parada always moved pretty well for his size and for his position. He did play um, some corner outfield in high school. So I always kind of assumed if he didn't catch, he, he would move to like left field maybe and see what he looked like moving around there. But I don't know that he has like the, the short area quickness for second base. That, that one's surprising. But maybe, I mean, shoot, we're, we're talking about all these players who are playing second base that I didn't expect to. Maybe I just need to change how I view second baseman. I'm assuming you're with me that you think second base is a bit of a reach for Parada. I, th- I would think so. I mean, <laughs> it's not... If if you if the Mets ultimately think he really can't catch or potentially just want to get him a little bit more versatility, like they have a pretty good catcher right now and Francisco Alvarez too. So um, if the bat becomes good enough again where you want some exposure to different positions, I mean, you could try it out and see how it looks see how he takes to it but i i would be surprised i think if that were um the future for him yeah well let's talk about my other cheese ball and that's emmanuel rodriguez the twins outfielder who had a a pretty significant fall in this top 100 he's still on the list uh but he's no longer a top 50 prospect one of the more unusual offensive profiles in minor league baseball i would say he's got close to an elite chase rate maybe in part because he just doesn't ever really swing when he does make contact he hits the ball extremely hard um, but it's a really low average with still a very good on base percentage good exit velocity numbers uh, and reports that he's a good athlete in the outfield but questions about how much he's actually going to hit where where are you at on the Emmanuel Rodriguez hype continuum from me to um, you have to have a good batting average to be a good baseball player Ben how where would you fall on that scale I don't think you have to have a good batting average to be a good <laughs> baseball player, but if you are striking out 37% of the time against high A pitching <sighs> yeah. in 142 <laughs> plate appearances, that is not a harbinger of future success. Yeah. So that is the part that concerns me. Um, it's not necessarily the batting average itself. It's the trouble making contact swing and missing he does he does have a lot of power he has a lot of patience and he's you know athletic enough where he can handle center field uh, that that part actually surprises me I, I would not have thought that when he was younger but he's he's been staying in center field so far um, mm-hmm. so there are definitely traits to like there and you know, I guess if you were trying to make a stronger case for him, you could say, look, this guy also missed most of last season. Yeah, put and, me in that camp. Put me in that camp. Yeah. Give, give so, me whatever uh, whatever excuse I can give for him at this if, point. If you were his attorney calling us to <laughs> move him up on the – make the case to move him up on the list again. Uh, oh, I tried. I tried to I, – I didn't try to move him up on the list, but I tried to prevent his fall as much as I possibly could in the room. I will say that. I, I got outvoted. <laughs> Yeah, so there there are definitely a lot of things that he does well, but man, that is a big, big whipping, waving red flag right yeah. now that I think merits a, a pretty good drop on the list. But again, still, mm-hmm. I think he still deserves to be in the top 100, but I think a lot of these guys who we had in the top 100, like him, 
coming into the year. Part of maybe why you're and I don't think you're alone in thinking that the list is probably a little bit weaker than usual. In addition to the graduations, is is a lot of guys who we have on the list who probably still deserve to be on the top 100 either haven't stayed healthy or have really struggled when they've been on the field yes there are a lot of those guys any other ones that that jump out to you as notable players who just haven't really performed well Um, i'm kind of just scanning down the list like I guess like Tyler Soderstrom is another one that I've really liked. He's not hitting great. He didn't necessarily move down significantly, but for another player who is limited defensively, maybe you'd like to see him hitting a little bit more than what he's hitting in AAA. Um, it sounds like Mason Wynn has just been kind of okay. Curtis Mead has been hurt and struggling. Um, yeah, just a lot of guys that, that haven't been great and don't inspire a ton of confidence uh, I'm just kind of scanning down this list to see if there are any other ones. Parada, who we mentioned, Cam Collier. Marco Luciano with the Giants has been one. I mean, yeah. That's been a tough tough year for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just not the most, uh, not the sexiest top 100 that, that we've ever had. I'll say that. I still think there's plenty of talent, and hopefully we can get some of these guys healthy and making adjustments uh, and figuring things out. But, you know, it's a... Uh, it's a prime list for Dylan Cruz and, and Paul Skeens to jump into and make some noise with come August 1st, I guess. I'm not sure when our update is, when we'll add the draft guys, but the signing deadline is August 1st, so it should be yeah. around that time where they plug Ori- in. Orioles pitching, too. I mean, between Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, I mean, I've always been probably more skeptical on Hall where mm-hmm. I you know, obviously recognize the stuff and the potential to be a, a very good high-leverage reliever if you can – figure out where the ball is going a little bit more yeah but i think that's really the upside for him i I don't see him as a long-term starter and then it's you know this guy's a he's been in pro ball now for five six years where again it it could still click for him um i understand why we have him in the top 100 but for me he'd be more a guy on the on the outside looking in Conversely, Orioles hitters. Uh, Heston Kerstad was a guy who jumped up the list a little bit. He's been performing in the upper levels of the minors. Colton Kowser, the reports on him, his performance, the feedback, the overall profile. That one's been really impressive. Obviously, we talked a lot about Jackson Holiday. I think even guys who are not currently on the list, but uh, names like Kobe Mayo, Jordan Westberg, who is on the list. Uh, the Orioles and hitters, man, that, that seems to work out pretty well. So... Um, we've talked a lot about people that aren't performing, but it seems like if you're in Baltimore's organization and you hold a bat uh, for a living, then you probably have pretty good chances moving forward. Samuel Basayo yeah. is another guy who jumped on the list, has been good. So, Yeah, their ability to identify hitters at the amateur level and then develop those hitters is is extremely impressive. And, and you mentioned Colton Kowser, where he was somebody we were we were very high on him coming into the year and by we i mean baseball america and i would exclude myself from the group that was high on him i I was more skeptical i think probably jeff ponce was maybe the highest on him i can pull um, up our uh, personal list and see where everyone was on the preseason but um yeah i mean i remember him advocating for him pretty strongly to be um you know high in our or you know ranked pretty prominently in our top 100 coming Mm -hmm. into the year um which we where, had him 
you although i don't know where you're so i have everyone's pulled up I yours i can't find though well the the i mean the the main concern i had i think was just a lot of the strikeouts i mean it was 174 strikeouts yeah. last year in in a full season uh but he's cut that down this year i mean he always drew a lot of walks always hit the ball hard um those those are still there and he's making a lot more contact this season in the in triple a so it's you know 347 484 590 uh almost as many walks as strikeouts this year um there's there's a lot of you know and a pretty good athlete too it's there's a lot of different skills there to like high on base power and the greater contact frequency is is really encouraging to see mm -hmm. with him yeah that seems more in line with like how i viewed him as a pre-draft prospect too so i don't know if that one's shocking to me i think the the power that he's shown has been encouraging to me in the center field profile because he always seemed like likely center fielder but not like a lock and it's sounding more like center field is a lot for him are just everyone except for you ben in terms of preseason votes the range on him was 34 and you're right jeff was the high man on him to 54 so it wasn't the biggest range um but he's solidly above the entirety of, of where we had him in the preseason would you yeah. have had him would you have had him as a top 50 or outside of that range do you think on your preseason? i would have had him outside of there yeah okay would you have been i think jj was the lowest at 54 would you have had him lower than that yeah yeah i would have had him lower okay. than that so it would have been too too light on him he's yeah. he looks pretty pretty freaking good right now and then yeah. basayo too who's like mm -hmm. still a teenager catcher it's good to see the orioles signing good international prospects again it's good to see the orioles just signing international prospects again um so i think it's probably a it's it's good for the orioles obviously that basayo is doing so well and also just a good signal that hey <laughs> there's probably going to be some more of these guys coming mm -hmm. down the road. Cause you look at the upper levels of their system and it's just devoid of international prospects because they neglected that market for so many years. But mm -hmm. um, that's definitely starting to, to change now. I mean, Basayo hits the ball about as hard as you can hit it for what like an 18, 19 year old um, catcher. And I, I hope he can catch. He has a really strong arm. Um, he's gonna. He's so big. I mean, he's at least six three, maybe six four. Big, strong. Like he's not getting any smaller. Um, so there's some tools there to be able to catch. He's gonna have to, I think, clean up some of the blocking and receiving still. But I mean, it, it looks like the bat could be good enough, and certainly the power. Where if he has to move off the position, there's still a a major league role for him. I mean, his average exit velocity is over 90 miles an hour hmm. already right now. I think we've had him up to like 110, 112 this season already off the bat. Um, not a, you know, big swing and miss guy either. So there's, there's some pretty exciting um, offensive components, especially with him. Yeah, no, sounds exciting. Yet another, uh, yet another hitting piece for the Orioles as they make their way back from a, a tough rebuild. Uh, looking good for them overall. Um, ben, I think that probably is going to have to wrap it up for us. We can get into a couple questions, but I know that my editors, Matt, Eddie, and Chris Trinkle, will be uh, 
will be pretty mad with me probably if I go three hours on today's podcast, just given some of the stuff I need to turn in. But we do have a couple interesting questions that I wanted to to at least get into here at the end here. Um, we have an email from Eric, who is a Pirates fan in Virginia. He said, love your work, Ben and Carlos. I wanted to know if you think it would be best and make more sense for the Bucks to draft Cruiser Skeens because it aligns better with the timeline of Cabrian Hayes and Brian Reynolds being in their prime, as well as O'Neill Cruz at the early development stage. Uh, also prospects like Henry Davis, Quinn Priester, Nick Gonzalez, and Andy Rodriguez potentially being in their rookie seasons. Uh, if all of that plays out, it looks like a promising team. Or would Charrington not care about that and just take Jenkins or Clark because he sees them having the potential to be better than Cruz, though five years away? Thanks, and keep up the great material and podcasts. Uh, so I guess two questions in here, Ben. What do you think about lining up your picks at the top of a draft based on potential timelines and competitive windows? Do you think there's any merit to that? And I think the second part here that wasn't really a question, but I do think that maybe we should reevaluate what our timeline expectations are for the elite high school players in the class because I think those timelines are pretty short and pretty similar to the college players they're picked around. There are a couple notable examples that, that I wanted to point to, but I'm curious as what your overall thoughts are on this question. More of a, like a philosophy and a, a timing question. I think the best strategy is to take the player who you think is the best player available, right? Like if the Orioles had said, uh, well, we think we're going to be competitive in 2023, so do we really want to take Jackson Holiday? We should take a college hitter we should take brooks lee instead or uh you know zach netto is a good one in hindsight <laughs> yeah it was yeah, zach netto would be certainly a a good one i don't think he was you know i, I, I don't didn't know expect exactly him to go that fast yeah yeah well I, I don't think he was i don't know that he was in consideration for oh, no, being no. the number i don't one think so no pick either but um i don't know maybe the orioles had him there i don't know what their <laughs> board looked like when I mean given how good he's been it wouldn't surprise me <laughs> but he I, I think you take the best player available and if you need to you know supplement with free agent signings or trades you can do that and it's a good thing to have younger players who are at lower levels at different waves coming through the organization at the same time there is just the it's easy for me to sit here and say that when there's no ramifications for me and my job and my future. Whereas if you are the general manager of the pirates and you now have been there for, this is what your fourth season as the GM of the pirates. Well, there's probably going to be some pressure on you to, I think, uh, put a winning club on the field in Pittsburgh in the next couple years so i could see where the incentive would be for you as far as career risk to Mm -hmm. take the college player who's going to get there faster now it just so happens this year like yeah we have dylan cruz and paul Skeens as the top two players in the draft so it aligns that way but if they think that i think if they think that max clark or walker jenkins is legitimately the number one player in the draft then and there's other financial considerations as far as what you can do with maneuvering your bonus pool money around too but if they think that one of those guys is legitimately the best player in the draft 
then they should draft one of those. They should, they should just draft whoever they have mm-hmm. at, at number one. Yeah. I also think, too, like like five-year ETA for these elite high school players, and I would include Walker Jenkins and Max Clark pretty easily in that in that Philemon player. I think it's it's quicker than five years for these players. I don't know that it's a guarantee, but Bobby Wood Jr. was drafted in 2019. He made his Major League debut and was a Major League regular in 2022, just three years later. Jared Kelnick drafted in 2018 uh, with the sixth overall pick. He made his debut in 2021. Um, obviously, he didn't stick around long term and, and perform super well immediately, but he's hitting pretty well in the big leagues right now. Corbin Carroll is another one. He was drafted in 2019 in the middle of the first round. He made his big league debut in 2022. Uh, he is an above average regular in 2023 as we sit here. I think even Marcelo Meyer, he was drafted in the first round of 2021, he is on track to have a similar timeline in ETA as those guys. He recently got promoted to double A. It wouldn't be shocking at all to me if he made his big league debut at some point late next year, just depending on kind of how the performance goes. Um, even another one, Brett Beatty in the 2019 draft, he was first round 12th overall. He made his big league debut in 2022. So I, I think for these elite high school hitters specifically, their development path to the big leagues is quicker than maybe you can ascribe to just high school players in general. They're, they're elite prospects for a reason. They're being taken first overall because they have a combination of really exciting pure upside um, and relative safety uh, given that demographic. So I think we could probably accelerate your like internal clock for these high school players who are going to be taken in the top five, top 10 picks range. Like Jackson Holiday, another one. If he keeps hitting the way he's hitting, it's it's not going to take him five years to, to get to the big leagues. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. Cool. We got one other question from St. Louis Perfectos on Twitter. Is 6-0 Sanchez still prospect eligible? Obviously injury riddled, but any insight into his stuff and how he's valued? And how long does it take to get a feel on prospects who are making their debuts in the ACL and FCL? Um, you want to take this one, Ben? Uh, that is a lot of different questions. Uh, yeah, 6 is a case of... Uh, you know, you can have a very exciting pitching prospect when they're who's uh, 18, 19 years old. Yeah, and even when he was 20, it was pretty exciting too. But um, and he even came up and had some success in the big leagues. But yeah, just more, more and more injuries derailing his career, which is just another example of the attrition risk with pitchers. So, um, doesn't doesn't look super promising mm-hmm. on on that front. But and just for like eligibility requirements for us for prospect qualification, if if any position player hasn't exceeded 130 MLB at bats, any pitcher has not exceeded 50 MLB innings or 30 MLB appearances for relievers, they are still prospect eligible. That's kind of the cutoffs that we use. If you ever need to know, like if a, if a prospect is still prospect eligible. Yeah, and then the what was it about? complex league the second part was um how long does it take to get a good feel on prospects who are making their debut in the acl and fcl so it it probably depends because ideally for most players we will have history on them and reports on them from before they popped into the acl or the fcl whether it's for an international player from their the time they were an amateur or when they were in the Dominican summer league 
previously or, or maybe even spring training, extended spring training. Uh, and then obviously for, for the draft picks, there are reports pre-draft too. But um, yeah, I, I think you can pretty quickly glean some valuable information from those players in the complex leagues. Like we've mentioned before, it's, you know, it, it's one thing to see high school players or, or international players to facing amateur competition in showcases or in high school games, swinging metal bats against, you know, not the, the best competition, obviously, uh, certainly not comparable to what there's the stuff they're seeing in the ACL or the FCL during the, their spring high school season. So uh, I think within, within the, I think within like a couple weeks, you can again, of like in-person looks like scouts, live looks at players, you can have a pretty good feel for, for those players or any adjustments that need to be made but it also just depends on the player. Like sometimes there are just guys who maybe won't jump out as far as the raw tools and you just need to see them play a little bit more over time to appreciate how, how good of a hitter a player is or, or the player's instincts and, and feel for the game that, that might not jump out right away for somebody who's maybe more physical and explosive and athletic. Um, and then sometimes it's, you know, if it's for a draft pick, they might just be run down and gassed at the end of the year. And you just have to keep that context in mind sometimes when you're watching these guys toward the, the end of the summer. Well said, I don't have much to add to that. Um, so hopefully those questions were, uh, acceptable for you guys thank you for sending them again if you want to send us a question you can email us at future projection at baseballamerica.com ben is at twitter uh ben's twitter is at ben badler i should say mine is carlos a Colazzo. you can also follow the podcast at future pro pod um so send any questions comments feedback our way there we see everything you send there uh even if we can't answer every question the week that you send it we we typically can get eyes on it pretty quickly um so if you have any suggestions or thoughts um please let us know uh, ben, anything you want to mention before we hop out of here for the week? We will try to record an episode next week. Uh, I'll be in Atlanta for much of next week, but I'll be home toward the end. So we're going to try to make sure we can record, but uh, we'll we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, the, the consistency is obviously key for the podcast. We've been trying to make a, a point to, to keep them coming out regularly for you guys each week. It's fun for us to do. I know you guys enjoy hearing from us each week, so we'll try and make that happen as we get into really the busiest part of, of the, the season. But I think this is a peak year for us, Ben, in the three-year run of the show. This is it's got to be our most, most podcast uh, through January, June, right? I don't know. There wasn't really anything going on in 2020. so <laughs> Is that when we started? I think it was during the pandemic. Yeah, I think that was. Man, the... what a what were we thinking? I'm scrolling back on our feed right now. Our first episode was was well, the year after the pandemic. Our first episode was February of 2021. Okay, we're not quite makes... as old as you think we are. All right, <laughs> fair enough. Maybe we could have gotten a lot bigger if we started a podcast in the pandemic. It does seem like a lot of a lot of digital. Um, whether it's whether podcasts or videos or streaming, like that all blew up pandemic. So we really missed the uh, we missed the jump. There was less baseball to be to consume like live. So maybe us talking about baseball would have 
would have been good in 2020. Oh, well. Yeah, a lot of things... A lot of things that blew up then also sort of fizzled out. Were you ever on Clubhouse? Oh God, no. The app? No. Were you? Like, well, I, I know did, you, you were. You were a very early adopter of a lot of these platforms because you just kind of want to see what it is. Like you're, you're much more interested, and I am much more like, if it becomes like the new meta where everyone's going to, then I'll join. But I don't really want to be an early adopter and mess around for something that might not exist two days later. Uh, I think it was, they had like a gazillion users because everybody was at home. I think it was like a four something billion dollar valuation. Jesus. And it was like, yeah, just because everybody is at home. What was, the, to, what was the concept? Because I, I had heard of Clubhouse. I never once sought it out as like from a, like to produce things on it or consume content on it. I don't even really know what it is. It was like an audio streaming platform. So it was like Twitter. So, so it was like Twitter spaces, which also have you ever clicked on and listened to a whole Twitter space? Not intentionally. No. <laughs> I just think it's a terrible format for it, but whatever people use it. Did you ever, did you ever think it was like cool? It was interesting, like an interesting concept when everybody is locked, not locked, but everybody is at home and can't go out and do much of anything. So yeah. um, once that ended, I think that was the, I, I haven't heard anybody talking about it in like well, two years at least. Su Substack notes and Substack in general is the new move. So I'm excited to read your new newsletter on Substack. I... I will not be. Uh, <laughs> You're not going to be I, a sub stacker. <laughs> we have a uh, we've 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 been doing the subscriber model uh, pre pre like almost any everybody. I mean, as long as I've been, you can do it. You can do a free better. newsletter at Substack. It's not exclusively paid. And they the recent thing with them is they launched Notes, I guess, as like a competitor to Twitter. Um, and then Elon was, I think, he was throttling all the links to Substack Notes because you can't have that. Yeah, yeah. If you post a link on Twitter, it definitely gets throttled no matter what. But it seemed like in that case, that was even more <laughs> throttly. <laughs> All right, I guess enough uh, social media talk for the day. We'll get out of here. Uh, thank you guys for listening. And as always, thanks to the subscribers and supporters of Baseball America and helping us just produce the content that we produce. Um, we really appreciate that. Um, and thank you guys for listening to the podcast. And keeping up with us. Um, yeah, I guess for Ben, I'm Carlos. We will see you guys hopefully next week.